0: Uh, This morning, I have the privilege of introducing you, uh, introducing to some of you Todd and Donna Funk. And Todd and Donna um, don't need introduction to many of you who are here. Um, They've been a part of the missionaries that we support here at Bridge for 19 years. And um, I was thinking about it. I remember. Uh, it was the first year of, of me being the senior pastor here, and I remember Todd coming up to my office because he knew somebody here, and, and uh, he was getting ready to go into the mission field, and, and I don't know if you remember this, Todd, but you had a flip chart. You had a flip chart of what of what you were doing, yeah. So he put the flip chart on my desk and talked to me about what was going to go on and in, in, um, what they had signed up for in ministry to New Zealand. And I remember just looking at the thing after thing. I can't remember honestly what was on each thing, but what I remember, what I remember was this. And I've talked to many people about this. Uh, by the end of that meeting, uh, Todd said, uh, in, in his own way, or the feeling that, that I got was like, "Man, I'd be a fool not to support what's going on here. Like, it is my privilege to do this, right? And our church's privilege." And it wasn't just a sales pitch. It was somebody who really believed in what they were doing and, and what God had called them to, that God had spoken and they were going to walk in obedience. And it was really up to us. If you want on board or not, that's fine. But, you know, God's doing this thing, right? And, and you had done it in such a great way. But what I saw was um, something of passion in, in Todd and Donna. And, and you know what's beautiful? 19 years later, they're still serving the Lord in New Zealand. And God is, man, what, it has been our privilege to support you guys. And what I would say of Todd and Donna is they're deeply relational, that um, they're disciplers. You know, the Great Commission is to go into all the world and, and preach the gospel, but it's to disciple these nations. It's not just to throw out the gospel message, but to live among people and teach them how to follow Jesus. And they do this well with children, with these camps that they do. They do it with high schoolers, they do it with young adults in their home, with marriages. Um, they are a powerhouse couple, and I mean that. And God is using you in great ways in New Zealand. And so we're honored to have you here. So would you guys come and, and uh, share an update with us and whatever the Lord has in store?
1: Thanks oh so much, gosh. Danny. Well, we were going to show you a slideshow, but Danny's pretty much told you everything <laughs> there is to possibly know. I'm going to do most of the speaking today, but I, I wanted Donna to come up and just join me for a little bit. Because uh, um, I, I give the headlines, the bullet points, but she will add life and floweriness to, to all, <laughs> all we're talking about there.
2: Um, before we get going, I was just, I had determined, oh, I'm not going to cry. I'm not going to cry. You guys always really? to say, I'm not going to cry. Long. And then you do that last song. <laughs> I really think that... <clears throat> the Lord was really speaking to me right now that there's just a real message that he's giving to his people and it is to not fear. My, my devotion for the last month has been about fearing not. And I thought about, what's the first thing the angel said to Mary? Don't fear. So it's from the very beginning that God has just been encouraging us. We think about every single amazing leader, every single person Um, that did something significant in the Bible. The words were always, don't fear, he's there. And some of you might think, you know, when we talk about, oh, be still, stand, and you're like, that sounds easy for you. Well, you know what, those things aren't easy. Try to tell a two-year-old, just be still. (laughs) That's pretty much how it is when God tells us to be still. Mm -hmm. We're that two-year-old. Or to stand, and just to encourage you that some countries use standing as a form of torture. You know, it's not easy. So I want to encourage you. You know what? When you're trying to stand, you're like, I'm standing, I'm standing, but this is so hard. God knows. He knows. So even in that, I know that didn't sound very, you know, Christmassy, but that's <laughs> you're good. You're good. You're good. <laughs> just stand. And and for all of you who think, yeah, it'd be so easy to be a missionary in New Zealand. I'm not even kidding you. Two nights ago, I was like, Todd, I just want to come home, you know? And then I come in here, I'm like, I just want to come home. It's, it's always that pull. Amen. It's always that struggle. But even though we know that that's where God has called us, um, yeah, even to that beautiful country, it needs a lot of help, a lot of help. So we just feel privileged to be able to come on your part because not everybody can go. But you guys have chosen to send, and we're mm. just really thankful for that.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. awesome. Okay, that's all. Okay. That's wonderful, dear. That's awesome stuff. And I thought, when Danny was talking, I thought, I wonder if he remembers that first meeting. And and all the adjectives you used, those are the adjectives I would use. Passion. I don't know if you use naivety, but I'm sure I was quite naive. We'll probably be there a couple years. Yes, here years. we are. 19 years 19 later. 19 years later. Um, but thanks for believing in me, man. Us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think we're making a difference. We're so let's alive. throw up our, our a few slides, and we'll just show you what we've been up to over the last... Couple of years. Some of you get our newsletters. This is our family. We left here with four: us two and our two daughters, and we've grown to about. There's 18 of us in that picture.
2: <laughs> yep. So um, you you all know we left with Alex and Nikki. They gained Kiwi husbands, so we have Kiwi grandchildren. Um, the girl with the star. We've told you guys before. When Isaiah, um, she came to us pregnant and was going to have an abortion. And we told her, um, look, if you keep your baby, we'll keep you. Yeah. So we have another daughter and Julia. And Isaiah is sitting right behind me. He is now 16. Mm. So, um, yeah, and she has since had Marcia, Renee, who named after um, her mother, and me. And then the little one Isaiah is holding, uh, Julia got married to Sam, the one in the blue in the very back. And that's little Hosea. And we've just found out that she's pregnant again, <laughs> okay? And the guy in the green, he's actually American, but um, somehow we met him yeah. years and years ago, and he is integrated into our family, and that's his fiance on the very end, she's Russian. We have such an international family. We do, we um, do. Then the guy in the back, that's Jun, our Chinese son, so I'm telling you at Christmas time it's it's yeah. amazing and just Christmas, when we get together Easter, birthdays everything. That's crew. So that's our that's, that's our, our crew. tribe right and, there.
1: And our latest member of our family, the next slide there, is little Lena. that's Nikki's youngest. Yeah. And she's beautiful, she's sixteen months old. She's
2: sixteen months old and she um, has a genetic um, disability. And so um, my daughter didn't remember this. Uh, We were traveling over the Harbor Bridge one time years ago, and she said, Mom, I think I'm going to have a baby with a a disability. And I said, Really? Okay. And I said, Well, it'll be fine, whatever it'll be. She doesn't remember having that conversation. So I think the Lord had just put it in her spirit already that, you know, Elena was going to come one day. Mm. And she is so beautiful, (laughs) but we're believing that God will make the impossible possible, but that she will whoever God is going to make her out to be. Yeah. So, yeah. And those are our other grandbabies. Yep. So I think we have seven now.
1: Yes. Yeah. I We're think. growing, ever growing. <laughs> so that's the that's family. A few ministry pictures. <clears throat> we do, do like uh, Pastor Danny said, if I'll if raise my hand, that'll just go next one. We do a lot of, a lot of mentoring, uh, young men that God, you know, brings into my life. I, I mentor. The top right guy is Bradley. He was having a real crisis of faith when I met him. Uh, several years ago, I mean, just his faith was in the, hanging in the balance, and I've kind of mentored him and taken him along. And now he's, and he comes to camps with us and gives his Thank testimony you. preaching. He's going to preach at our church uh, in, in uh, I think, a month there. Uh, good job. Um, we do couples, as Danny said, we do couples ministry. We'll do pre marriage counseling uh, one or two times a year and just share with them our lives and our marriage and how you can be married for 35 years and never never have, a, fight. Never have an argument. Ever. <laughs> the largest laughter is the people that know us. <clears throat> yeah. It will be 35 years in December. <laughs> it will be on the 20th, yeah. And Donna, um, she uh, often shares with the young women that God leads into her life and yes. kitchen. As anybody knows, my wife can cook. So she just just shares her life and scriptures with them and pours out into their lives. Um, and Between the two of us, we do a fair a bit of preaching and teaching go to the next one a fair bit of preaching and teaching around New Zealand. Of course, when COVID was around, we had to do it online. We never give up an opportunity to preach and teach and pray and have a little prophetic word from Donna usually. Um, And and so we just, I don't know, whenever the door is open, we're empty nesters now. So we just, yep, 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 yep. Todd, could you, Donna, could you, yep, yep, yep. This is something my wife is uniquely gifted in is graphic design and she, uh, we work alongside a children's ministry called Children's Bible Ministries. It's a very old and established ministry there. And so she'll do uh, Bible stories for them, the, you know, the graphics for the Bible stories and book covers and whatnot. You'll see her with the guy there. His name is Hugh. He was, he's a Kiwi, a New Zealander, but he travels to India and Africa and Asia doing children's training programs and writing manuals and stories. And so Donna would visualize that. The book on the right was his life's work. He passed last year. The Lord took him home, but not before he finished his kind of magnum opus there. Beautiful. One of the things I'm uniquely gifted in is apologetics. That means defending the faith, um, the tenets and the beliefs of Christianity. And so I'm a uh, volunteer alongside New Zealand's largest apologetics ministry called Thinking Matters. We do five conferences nationwide each year and I MC and I do some of the speaking there and I'm the national director of speaker development. So that's something uh, God has you know, put in my hands that I do. And I really get a buzz out of just talking to you know, apologetics. I didn't, didn't realize that something just came so naturally to me. One of the things we're both really passionate about is young people, equipping the youth and young people. We do youth camps, youth groups, in young schools sometimes, Christian schools, secular schools. Um, the last three years, you can go to the next one, I went to the, the nation's second largest Christian school called Kingsway, and they asked me to address all the graduating seniors and give them kind of an apologetic equipping to, to help them to, you know, why they believe what they supposedly believe and the surety of Scripture and the resurrection and what. Well,
2: I think that's so important that Todd gets to talk to these leaving seniors is because they literally get into university and they just hear all kind of garbage. Yeah. Our daughter left school and not—that's what they call it in New Zealand—graduated <clears throat> because they don't use graduation. In so left universe. school yeah. and went to university. And when she she came home one day, I was like, "I don't believe in you know the creation anymore. I, you know, evolution makes sense." And I was like, "Do you know who your dad is? You know, how could? What okay, did you grow up?" And in? so he's like, "Okay, let's talk about it." You know, and it was just. You know, for a minute, she was just like, I don't know about all this stuff. And this just, I want to encourage you guys who have young people who are just on this journey of, you know what? Nah, I don't believe in God anymore. That's where Alex is right now. She's mm-hmm. like, mm, I don't believe in God anymore. I'm like, that's okay. Cause you're in the family of God. doesn't matter. You know, you are, you just keep going on this journey. God has them. I'm not the least bit worried about it because I know what God promised. So you guys who have kids who are kind of doing their own thing, that's all right. That's right. God's got him.
1: Fear not. <laughs> yes, fear not. That's what we say. About a month ago, I got to be able to go down to a place called Dunedin. It's the bottom of the South Island. We did an apologetics youth conference. So we talked about worldview. What is a Christian worldview? What does it entail? We talked about gender and sexuality, a real hotbed topic these days. And I talked about the scientific problems with Darwinian evolution like that. Um, at the bottom right that's uh, the Christian Surfers of New Zealand, and uh, they've asked me to come and talk to those guys about the reliability of Scripture for a few years in a row. That's pretty cool. One of our most recent ministries is, is doing the young, young adults, young professionals at our church. We, uh, uh, the top left is, a, is an adult home group we had for a while, um, mixed ages, but um, because of COVID, we hadn't had anybody in the home, and so we just prayed one night God. We want our home filled. We, we, you know, we rent a house there. We, we open it up to you and our lives to you. Fill it with young people, especially if you can, because we like young people. And uh, less than 24 hours later, the pastor of our church said, we just got out of our staff meeting, and all the staff unanimously agreed that you guys would be the couple to do the young professionals. So I said, well, what am I going to do, argue with that? Uh, those are the kind of <laughs> prayers that God tends to answer pretty quickly sometimes, Right. Um, depending on the week, uh, one of the big rocks in my bucket is doing what we call launch pad or Bible in schools. That's when I go into um, public uh, elementary schools and I get to teach Bible stories, anywhere from the Christmas story to the Easter story to anything in between. And these kids, I'll do anywhere from 200 to 400 kids every single week. And most of these are are very unchurched kids. And so we see, I I just don't know what's going to end up in heaven because God's allowed me to go in there. Can you all make sure that you pray for
2: Todd in this area because Launchpad gives them this boundary. And Todd, like, teeters right there. Like, well, I can't give you altar can't calls. Say this, you and can't I can't say take that. offerings. <laughs> but uh, I'm <laughs> but at a little church. They're yeah, little and church. I'm like, oh, honey, you better be careful. He's like, no, 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 nope, nope. I've got okay. to actually say Jesus. I mean, it's gotten that bad that. They don't want you to even say Jesus at a Bible well, not in school. It's quite that bad,
1: but I mean, you know, there's certain yeah, parameters and boundaries. A lot of parameters.
2: Yeah. But you you do it really well. I do. You I mean,
1: the best that of line. my conscience allows me to, and just telling the Easter story with passion and whatnot. Um, the bottom left and top and top left are University of Auckland. I go in there about twice a year, and I'll talk again about the, uh, how do we know Jesus really rose from the dead, or how do we know the New Testament is true and reliable and accurate, and that was pretty cool. Um, we can go to the next one. We do a lot of training and equipping. Uh, we work alongside Children's Bible Ministries, and so a lot of that tra- we'll do trainings at the headquarters there, training and equipping people to work with kids and reach their hearts and minds and very souls. And so we'll get groups into there. At the bottom right, we were over the pastoral oversight of our home group leaders at the church, and this Don is just doing some teaching there. Um, Next one. Uh, We were doing a panel discussion at the church. I don't remember what it was about. I did the youth and Donna did the adults there. And one topic that Donna is really passionate and good at is is reaching, uh, talking with people, uh, either teachers or or parents of people with special needs. And just kind of helping them unlock the potential. Particularly
2: Um, Sunday school leaders because our churches are being inundated with children with special needs from one end of the spectrum to the other. And these are people, oh, hi, hey, Ron. And, and without, <laughs> I assume Lisa's right next to you. Hey. <laughs> um, from one end of the spectrum to the other. And they're doing the best they can. But these, these teachers, your teachers, are not trained in this. And the kids, you know, wherever there's a community church that embraces children with special needs, your church will grow because they want to know that their children are being taught and loved and ministered to just like every neurotypical child. And they're just... Oh, there's my family. Hi, guys, back there. I didn't know they were coming. <laughs>
1: Stay on track. Okay.
2: Um, <laughs>
1: getting distracted. Thank you. There's Kevin I'm and Blair oh, right oh, there.
2: Oh, hey, guys. Randy. And so I feel fun. like a puppy, like, oh, oh. Um,
1: Funny.
2: See, then I forget what I'm going to say because of my age. Just
1: special to God. She special does to God. Church, That's the name it? of the
2: curriculum I've written for and church. It's yeah. called Special to God, yeah. Ministering to Children your, with Special your needs. you one-day seminar where yes. people come yes. in
1: and, and, and get that. And yeah. she's great and passionate about it, a real ministry that's just developed there when we've been there. And she even puts on a, a weekend camp called Kids Connect where uh, kids, special need kids, come for the weekend. And uh, just it's just a mini camp there. And We do two-week-long camps. But she says this weekend-long camp uh, just tires her out even more. It's just incredibly tiring because of that. Um, uh, yep. We also do a little bit of men's ministry and the next slide, a bit of women's ministry. Just when we go into churches, we'll, we'll kind of do, do weekends of ministry there and just talk to the men and women there. Um, and even leadership development. The bottom left is, um, excuse me, top, top left is me speaking at a YWAM camp. And I know Danny's passionate about YWAM. There's one near a, about an hour away. And uh, we do leadership development with different churches there. They'll let us, you know, do a Sunday night thing with that. And one of the things that we've really, and probably the whole world, is, is gone to more online content with COVID lockdown. So yeah. we're just doing, you know, object lessons, Bible stories, videos, drama, mm-hmm. skits, trainings, all kinds of trainings. It was a steep learning curve, but I'm sure you guys can relate, <laughs> you know, when COVID made us get online, we go to the next one. Um, and and our, our reach, we did a podcast where we gave our testimony of how we made it to New Zealand. But our reach with Zoom just far extended our local reach. I mean, one Zoom, uh, meeting, we would have had 30 or 40 locals, but because we did it by Zoom, we had the Solomon Islands, we had the Philippines, we yeah. had African churches, India. about three or four of them yeah. with yeah. like two or 300 people. So really extended our, our, our reach there. And uh, we, um, when COVID un- unlocked us, we went out to the community again. Donna doing face painting and I was passing out flyers and pamphlets. And we even had on the bottom right there Sorry, back one. Um, That was, anyway, we we had Thanksgiving the last two years or three years because they don't do, obviously, Thanksgiving in New Zealand. It's a U.S. holiday. And so we did that. So what you saw there was our camp. That's uh, kind of uh, one of the big rocks in our bucket. About every eight weeks, we do kids' camps with uh, 120 or so kids in each camp, age 7 to 15. And these kids, you can go to the next one, are are from all walks of life. Uh, About a third of them are completely unchurched. And a lot of them will be from broken homes and broken families. But as we know, Jesus heals the broken heart, doesn't he, and sets the captives free. And we see that at every single camp. There'll be Bible devotions and Bible discussions. And, it, you know, we, we'll even get main group, uh, main group Bible stories in the main hall there. Donna will teach some, and I will teach some. And Donna helps lead worship um, to the camp. And just it's so fun seeing kids that are just so locked up in their hearts when camp begins. and You know, teenagers with their arms crossed. But By the end of the camp, they're just raising their arms and experiencing the mm-hmm. fullness of God and worship. It's just transformation right before our eyes. Um, Donna will do the art ministry. That's her in the middle. And uh, I say it's ministry because when their hands and bodies are busy, their mouths just go. Yeah. And you can really get into their lives and hearts when that Um, And they love the the art projects that are done. And during the free time, Donna brings out her favorite thing, and my least favorite thing in the world, which is the slime. Can anyone relate? Do we have households That is slime ministry, I'm telling you. Slime ministry. Yes. Their hands are moving, their mouths are moving, and it's kind of like blue cheese. Either you love it or you hate it, I think. (laughs) I'm not so keen on it, to be honest with you. Um, And you can go to the next one. Uh, this is this is Isaiah. Uh, he starts coming to camp, and man, he's been to camp since he was a baby. But now you can go to the next one. He's he's a leader at the camp. You can see him in the top right there. He's leading the group now and raising his hands. And I'm seeing, the, I'm watching the little kids next to they're him looking just looking up and raising their <laughs> hands. And I just couldn't be more proud of him and the family. That's Julia and her husband Sam, top left, doing a memory verse, and there, when camp is on, they're there and bringing people from their their neighborhoods and stuff. <clears throat> they're really switched on to to camp ministry there. And so it's it's a family ministry and we just love having them there and just just i just so proud and seeing what God that Isaiah is alive um, but also that they're they're there and just just built into it. Yep. And kind of the the main reason for going to the camp are the, are the salvations you can go to the next one. That's the salvation follow-up meeting from just the last camp. We had 40 kids come to know the Lord just through that camp. And I was doing a little calculations and said over the last decade there, we've probably conservatively seen about 1,500 kids come to know the Lord through, you know, the camp ministry. Isn't that fantastic? <laughs> just fantastic. And so we, uh, we want to just say thank you, Danny. Thank you, uh, Bridge. Thank you guys that, that pray for us. And you've just been such a great support over the years and just we can't thank you enough
2: yeah and i was telling danny when we walked in i just come in and we come in and it's just like you know you can just exhale Mm. other times you know we're like this going into places but when you come in here it's like oh we could just be us you know danny reminds me of stories that i wish he would forget you know just (laughs) (laughs) but family never (laughs) forgets so thank you for encouraging us praying for us, loving us and supporting us because all of that is for all of you as well. We all share in the harvest. It's all our. It's all on our crowns, everyone here. So mm. thank you so much for your support. Yeah, we appreciate it.
1: You take that. Thank you, love. That's awesome. But didn't she add a lot to the stories there? I mean, just, yeah. Like I said, I'm bullet points, headlines and she adds to it. So um, I've lost track of time, brother. He's given me like an hour and a half, and I've lost track of it. Also, I'm teasing, but I want to just deliver a short apologetic message. That's kind of what I do. Uh, it's not being exclusively, but I do. So I want to talk about um, what if Jesus had never been born? How many of you've seen the Christmas movie? It's a Wonderful Life. Have you seen that? Christmas classic, right? Feel good movie uh, where where a guy named George Bailey. Uh, played by Jimmy Stewart, he becomes real despondent and depressed around Christmas time. And he even contemplates suicide uh, on the bridge there of the, of Bedford Falls. Um, because he says, what's it all for? Have I even made a difference in this world? Have I even made a difference in Bedford Falls there? And so he jumps into the icy river below, but he gets rescued by the angel Clarence. Spoiler alert, right? And, and Clarence shows him Look, George Bailey, this is what Bedford Falls would have been like had you never been born. Pretty incredible story, right? And so um, I kind of subtitled it, What If if George Bailey Had Never Been Born? That's what the movie's all about there. But today, um, I'm going to ask a slightly different question, and it's, What would the world be like if Jesus had never been born? What if Jesus had never been born, right? How different would the world be today, even, if Christ had never been born. Now, the critics, the critics would have you believe that that the world would be a better place if Jesus and his Christians had never been a part of it, right? The 19th century German philosopher, one of the most influential critics, Nietzsche, the one who said, God is dead. He said this, Christianity remains to this day the greatest misfortune of humanity. 20th century atheist Bertrand Russell He said, the Christian religion, as organized into its churches, has been and still is the principal enemy of moral progress in this world. 21st century, the late Christopher Hitchens wrote a book called God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything, not specifically addressing Christianity, but certainly lumping it all in there. And the big question is, are the the critics correct, right? Or has Jesus and his followers made the world a better place, right? So today I want to give an apologetic, a defense for Christianity, because it is under attack in the world, in case you've you've been living under a rock to not know that, right? The Bible is under attack. Christianity is under attack as having made the world polluted in in a worse off place, right? So my premise is this. Yes, although Christianity has some ugly snapshots, Think of a photo album, and you see the one where you got a funny face or whatever. you got ugly snapshots, right? But our portfolio is nothing but wonderful. Our portfolio is, is Christians have been a light to the world. The world is forever changed. Jesus was God's gift to mankind. When the angels came, the herald angels, and told the shepherds uh, that it was good news, that's what I believe it has been, good news, peace on earth, goodwill towards men, so how then? How has Christ and his Christianity made this world a better place? What benefits has Jesus brought to his, and his followers brought to mankind? Well, several areas. The first is in the value of human life. Since Jesus came to this earth, the world has begun to ascribe much greater value to human life, all human life. Human sacrifices were very common before and in the time of, of Jesus People would sacrifice humans to bring favor uh, from the gods or even to please uh, and show respect to their, their leaders, their political leaders, their earthly leaders. And it was considered perfectly normal, perfectly acceptable. Cannibalism has been practiced in many parts of the world up until relatively recently, especially in the South Pacific Islands there. In the 18th century, in the London Times, there was an article, a great attack on Foreign missionaries. What gives Christian missionaries the right to impose their morality and values on other cultures? What makes their morality superior to any others? Sound like something you'd read today, doesn't it? At the time, there was a very, very experienced world traveler who had been around South America and other places in the islands of the South Pacific. He wrote a letter to the editor of the newspaper. He said, and he criticized the article. He said, for should any Englishman be cast ashore on, such, on some uncharted island, he would devoutly pray that the lessons of the missionary had reached the island before him. You see, he had seen the savagery. He'd seen the cannibalism. This, this traveler who wrote the letter to the editor was none other than Charles Darwin. Later, a real enemy of Christianity, but he realized the effects that the Christian missionaries and Christianity had had on the islands. How many have seen the movie Gladiator? Not really a Christmas movie in it, is it? But neither is Die Hard, and some of you are going to watch that and call it a Christmas movie. Right? Am I right? The movie accurately depicts the blood sport in the Colosseum, pitting gladiators against one another to the death, or even wild animals to the death. We have our own version of this in New Zealand. It's called rugby. We have a team called the All Blacks. (laughs) It's pretty bloody there. But seriously, who knows how long the barbarity of of this would have continued if it were not for the acts of one Christian man, an Egyptian monk named Talamachus. Anybody ever heard of Talamachus? Well, good, I'll tell you a little story. So he was an Egyptian monk, right? And he went and visited Rome to see the sights, see, the, see you know, everything was going on. He goes to the Colosseum and sees the gladiators going at it. The barbarity, it just, it struck him as just completely wrong and immoral. And so what did he do? He goes home and prays about that God would change it. No, that's not what he did. He, he actually ran into the middle of the games and put himself in between the, the gladiators pleading that they stop. Now, can you imagine somebody running into the middle of an L.A. Raider game and saying, guys, guys, can't we just all get along? That's the way the, cl- the crowd reacted. And they stoned him to death. End of story. No, not the end of story. <laughs> it's like when Jesus died. That wasn't the end of the story. That was just the beginning. The, the Roman emperor at that time, his name, was, his name was Honorius. He was so impacted and disturbed by the act of Telemachus and what was going on and what he was trying to do, that he actually, three days later, he issued a decree banning gladiatorial games. That was in January 1st, 404 AD. And that's the last time they ever occurred. Wow. Telemachus gave his life, but how many lives did he save in the process in that ring, in that arena? Where do you think he learned that move from? We love not our lives to the death, huh? Christianity has elevated the sanctity and value of children. Before the time of Christ, um, babies were routinely sacrificed to the gods and the idols, or if they were unwanted, they were just discarded, left in the streets of Rome to die of starvation or wild animals or whatever, dehydration. Or they were even sold off as slaves at that time. And Jesus, he spoke directly, possibly because of the way children were treated at that time. He spoke directly about children. He gave one of the most solemn and harsh warnings in the entire Bible. He said, if anyone causes one of these little ones who believes in me to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned into the depths of the sea. Gee, how do you really feel about it, Jesus? Yeah one of the reasons Don and I are so passionate about kids' ministry, when we first went to New Zealand, we thought we were going to do university campus evangelism. And I'm still on the campus. But God's broken our heart for the, young, the younger generations, reaching them even younger. When Christians came on the world scene, the movie began to change, right? Christians, being moved with compassion, actually began to rescue these abandoned Roman babies and raise them as their own. The world's first orphanage originated then, And there, it was the early Christians that largely put a halt or curtailed infanticide there in the ancient Near East. And uh, some some critics might say, well, they were just unenlightened back then. They were just more barbaric back then. But I would kind of push back against that in two ways. Firstly, the abandonment of kids and the enslavement of kids still goes on, predominantly in in the third world, but it still goes on. And secondly... What is abortion but the killing of unwanted children? A sacrifice to the God of self, a career, or convenience? The more things change, the more they stay the same. World Health Organization says there's some 125,000 abortions worldwide every year. The pro-life movement is largely a Christian endeavor, Christian and Catholic endeavor. The abolition and slavery, by and large, have Christianity to thank. When Jesus walked the earth, just about half the population of the earth were slaves. Isn't that amazing? Think about that. About half the population were slaves. And while Jesus didn't teach on the, the sl- revolting and rebellion against slavery per se, his followers almost immediately began, began to take up and resist. Slavery is unjust and unloving and unchristlike. The churches, the early churches actually set up funds so they could buy people out of the slave market and set them free. Early church fathers, such as Gregory of Nisan, they spoke out against slavery, saying it's incompatible with Christianity. Later, it was Christians like in America, William Lloyd Garrison, who was a Christian and he led the abolitionist movement there, um, William Wilberforce and John Newton worked tirelessly in the United Kingdom to abolish it. Newton worked for, uh, uh, excuse me, Wilberforce worked for almost 30 years and only saw it abolished on his deathbed. Christianity today continues to the work of, of freeing people out of slavery and human, human trafficking with, with organizations like Destiny Walk and Faith Alliance, Walk and Freedom. Every part of the world where Christianity has spread life has become more sacred and valuable. And where areas where Christianity is not the predominant religion, um, life is pretty cheap, even today in 2022. Women are in a much better place and position today, hold more status in society than ever in history, and it's largely because of the influence of Christianity. Prior to Christ... A woman's life was seen as having very little value. In fact, in many ancient cultures, the wives were the property of their husbands. The husbands could abuse and even murder their wives with complete impunity. Nobody would really look askew at them. Women had no rights of property ownership. And in many cultures, women were not even allowed to speak in public or gain an education. They couldn't go to school at all. And we see this even today in certain Muslim sects and Muslim parts of the world. When I did a mission trip to India, uh, I I got this same vibe that many of the women were were, not educated and seen as second or third class citizens there. Completely counter to the culture, the Bible, the Bible declared women to be of equal worth, equal value, equal dignity, being made in the very image of God, the likeness of God. The Bible commanded husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. That's a tall order, isn't it? I'd much rather submit to somebody than love them like Christ, who gave his life for the church. Ironically, some of the the kind of the radical feminists, they think they're the victims and have been repressed by Christianity, when in reality, they're the beneficiaries of it. The positions they hold, the voice they have in society today, um, they can thank the work of of Christianity and Christian reformers in the Bible. In the late 19th century, a Hindu woman said to a Christian missionary, surely your Bible was written by a woman, was it not? The missionary said, why do you say such a thing? She says, because it says so many kind things about women. Our leaders never refer to us except in reproach. Because of Jesus, because of God's gift to the world, the world has changed the way it responds to people in need. People in need. People who are impoverished. People who are struck by disease or plague or famine or natural disasters. Nowadays, it's, it's, we realize that when, when there's a country or a nation or a region that's, that's been struck by a calamity, by a flood, a hurricane, a disaster, other nations, other armies come and, and give aid and give water and support. Back then, they did just the opposite. Before the time of Christ, if a calamity struck a neighborhood, it was a perfect time to go and conquer them, kick them while they're down. That was common to the world, right? In many countries of the world, they still exploit the poor and the needy and the crippled. The example and the teachings of Jesus forever changed the way the world reacted to people in need. Thanks to the parable of the Good Samaritan, people began to ask, Who is my neighbor? He may not look like me, talk like me, act like me, but I'm supposed to help this guy, right? After the resurrection of Jesus, we see the disciples immediately talking about what they were going to do for the widows in Jerusalem, right? In the book of Acts, we see that. I read a book some time ago called, this guy named Rodney Stark, he wrote, he's a historian. He wrote a book called The Rise of Christianity, trying to figure out as a historian why Christianity exploded like it did in the first century in the ancient Near East, And he identifies the compassionate actions of Christianity and Christians as a major contributor to why it grew, why it was so popular. In his book, he chronicles how two major plagues hit the Roman Empire. The first in A.D. 165, how about a third of the population died from the plague. And then about a century later, the plague of Cyprian hit. 5,000 people dying a day. Two-thirds of the population of Alexander died. In both epidemics, it's well documented that the pagan priests, the pagan doctors, and the pagan nobles, people with money, they all got out of town. Anybody that could leave, they did. Which makes sense, doesn't it? If this life is all you have, you just bail on it, right? And you go. But it's also historically well documented that the Christians stayed behind and helped the sick the needy, the dying. Kind of like Mother Teresa would do centuries later in Africa, in India, right? They actually even buried the dead. Not just their own Christian dead, but the pagan dead. The Roman dead, which probably helped stay the plagues a little bit. They also handed out food. They gave out food by the thousands every single day. Their care was so notable that later the Roman emperor, Emperor Julius Caesar actually tried to copy the church's welfare system but it failed miserably. You can imagine why. The Christians were not motivated by a decree from the emperor or a law. They were motivated by love for Jesus, by loving not their life because they believed in another life, with rewards, eternal rewards. And so they couldn't emulate that. They couldn't duplicate that. Christianity continues to lead the way in the alleviation of suffering. Maybe some of you are involved with or haven't done a short-term mission trip. Uh, with one of these or an, another organization. It's truly life-changing when you can go in and just devote a life, even a part of your life, even if it's just a week or two, to help alleviate the sufferings of others. Anyone been in a hospital lately? Once again, you can thank, you have Christianity to thank. It was Christians who formed the world's very first hospital. It was in Caesarea by Saint. Basil the Great in the fourth century. Christians were the first to establish hospitals on, on many of the countries and continents of the world today. Some of you might be familiar with the, the church council of Nicaea in A.D. 325. And Bible scholars say, yes, yes, that's when we formulated uh, the doctrine of the Trinity or, or you know, the, the deity of Christ. And we decided which Bible should be in the, in, the, in the canon of Scripture there. That's true, it's true, it's true. But a lesser known fact is one of the outcomes of the council was the instruction that every town where there was a church, there was also to be a hospital. How many knew that? Hmm. In 1864, a a Swiss Christian man named Henry Dunant described how he was absolutely, absolutely compelled by the love of Christ to start what eventually became known as the Red Cross. Dunant, in 1901, was the very first man to ever receive a Nobel Peace Prize. The International Red Cross today is the world's largest humanitarian organization, helping tens of millions of families of years and having saved hundreds of millions of lives over the life of its existence. If you can read the screen up here, you can also thank the Christian influence. You see, education in ancient past was only for the rich, only for those who could afford it, and it was, it was very few who could afford that. And obviously not for the women as well. The poor were thought to be left best left just ignorant. And it was against the law to teach slaves how to read. Illiteracy was and is today one of the keys to keeping people enslaved and oppressed and suppressed. Even today, like I said, it's illegal in some places and countries to teach women to read and write and be educated. The phenomenon of education for everyone came out of the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther, one of the leaders of the Protestant Refo- uh, Reformation, he advocated that all the monasteries be turned into schools. John Calvin promoted the concept of education for everyone, not just the rich, not just the men, for everyone. Other reformers followed suit, wanting people to be able to read the Bible for themselves. And while the Reformation had changed lots in the world, I think this might have been one of the largest impacts, is literacy, is literacy. High literacy enables freedom, personal freedom, societal freedom. Literacy brings stability, economic stability to, to people, to homes, to tribes, even to nations. And just like hospitals were first formed in many nations by the churches, so were universities. The world's first university, the University of, uh, of Boulogne, was established by Christians in 1088. The world's greatest universities, like Oxford and Cambridge and University of Edinburgh, were formed for Christians for Christian purposes. This is the founding statement of Harvard. Let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the main end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life. Don't know if they emphasize that much at Harvard anymore. It's ironic. Some of the same universities are so opposed to Christianity and the Christian ethic, where actually they have Christianity to thank for their very founding. It would be all too easy to conclude that the benefits of Christianity lie solely just meeting physical needs. Food, water, shelter, provisions, education, aid. But the one key element that it brings that can't be overlooked, it can't be minimized or neglected, is, is that it brings Christ. Christianity brings Christ. There was an atheist, a British political writer for the Sunday Times named Matthew Harris. Matthew Paris, I'm sorry. And he wrote an article in the Sunday Times in 2008, and he wrote this. He says, as an atheist, I truly believe Africa needs God. Missionaries, not aid money, are the solution to Africa's biggest problems. Before Christmas, I returned after 45 years to Malawi, the country I grew up in. In as a boy, I am a confirmed atheist, but I've become convinced of the enormous contributions that Christian evangelism makes in Africa, sharply distinct from the work of secular NGOs, government projects, and international aid efforts. These alone will not do, education and training alone will not do. In Africa, Christianity changes people's hearts, it brings a spiritual transformation. The rebirth is real, the change is good. Out of the mouth of an atheist. That's incredible that he would recognize that it's not just the water, it's not just the food, it's not just the aid, it's Christ that changes lives. The critics might object that you don't need Christian influence to alleviate suffering and respond to need. Well, that's a claim, but is it true? You do your research, you look at the Gallup polls and you look at the Pew surveys and the world World food banks and philanthropy panel studies, and unanimously, it, it is the religious people, and including, you know, Christianity is a large chunk of that, that do the largest amount of giving and give aid. Now I'm not just talking about Sunday morning tithes. I'm talking about giving to charitable and, and, and philanthropic organizations and causes and donating blood and stuff. My brother and sister-in-law just told me that their pastor just preached a message where if every Christian were yanked out of America today, <clears throat> we would have like point three or seven trillion less contributions of money to charitable organizations. That's a huge chunk. Give yourself a pat on the back, man. I mean, we do, because of the influence of Christ. We're very charitable. A well-respected British journalist, Malcolm Mugridge, he says, I spent a number of years in India and Africa where I found much righteous endeavor undertaken by Christians of all denominations. But I never, as it happens, came across a hospital or orphanage run by the Fabian Society or a humanist leper colony. In other words, it was the Christians that were doing it all. Now, before I went to the mission field, I was a science major at UCI and a science teacher up the road at Savannah. And so I just couldn't sleep tonight if I'd at least touch, and I'm almost done, Danny, just touch on the contributions of Christianity to science. It's commonly suggested that God and science are opposed to one another or that religion is an impediment to science. But it's unquestionably true that modern science arose within the Christian worldview and framework. It arose um, under Christendom, not in the East, not under atheism or Islam or anything else. Science was built on and works on the very premise of an orderly God, an orderly universe operating under predictable discoverable laws and if you have laws they thought there's got to be a lawgiver. it's got to be God that's giving our laws Johannes Kepler who discovered all the laws of planetary motion what the planets are doing his inquiry his study was based on his Christian worldview he described science as thinking God's thoughts after him what was God thinking when he put this universe in order and made it work like clockwork there many of the world's greatest thinkers and scientists were Christian men Men like Nicholas Copernicus, which gave us the heliocentric solar system. Isaac Newton, Galileo, Pasteur, who probably saved more lives than any scientist before or since him. Even in modern times, Francis Collins, who was the head of the Human Genome Project. And Raymond Domitian. Anybody ever had an MRI? You can thank a Christian man for inventing that. His Christianity certainly didn't impede that. Once again, I quote Rodney Stark. Historian, he says, the success of the West, including the rise of science, rested entirely on religious foundations, and the people who brought it about were devout Christians. A guy named Baruch Shalev, he estimated in the 20th century alone about 65% of the Nobel Prizes were awarded to Christians or people of Christian backgrounds. In the last hundred years, 98% of all medical and technological advances have come under Christendom, Christian nations, or Christians. The time doesn't even allow me to, to get into <clears throat> the influence Christianity Christian has had on art and music and free enterprise, <clears throat> free enterprise and work ethic and <clears throat> philosophy. There was an atheist, he's an atheist, he's alive, named Tom, Tom Holland. My last quote, or second to last. He recently wrote a book called Dominion. He's an atheist. But he argues it was the Christian revolution that made the modern world. He goes so far as to say that without Christianity, the Western world wouldn't exist as we know it today. Even, he says, the claims of the modern social justice warriors who sometimes despise Christianity rest on the foundation of Judeo-Christian values. He says those who make arguments based on love and on tolerance and on compassion, they're borrowing fundamentally Christian arguments and from a Christian worldview. He says if the West had not become Christian, he says nobody would have gotten woke. That's That's what he argues there. He says the very critiques of those who condemn Christianity for various perceived injustices are rooted in Christian precepts. He says... Christianity is the very water that Western civilization swims in, and sometimes we don't even know it. I wholeheartedly agree with James Russell Lowe. He was an editor of the Atlantic Monthly and a professor at Harvard University. He says, I challenge any skeptic to find a 10-square-mile spot on this planet where they can live their lives in peace and safety and decency, where womanhood is honored, where infancy and old age are revered, where they can educate their children where the gospel of Jesus Christ has not gone first to prepare the way. So, my friends, I've given you a bit of a, a history, historical overview. And so as you as you hear these accusations against Christianity and the Bible and stuff, you can hold your head high. You don't have to hang your head in shame and think, ah, oh, we have a shady past or we have something to be embarrassed about. And again, like I said, we have some ugly snapshots. There have been those who have under the name of Christianity, <clears throat> have acted like the devil and have done terrible things. But man, our portfolio is pretty good. We can hold our head high. Nothing less than the light, light of the world. <clears throat> if Jesus had been born, had not been born, there would have been no William Wilberforce's or Mother Teresa's or Henry Dunant's and the Red Cross. The world would be a very dark and cruel and heartless place. To borrow a line from C.S. Lewis, it would be like always winter, but never Christmas. I think that was an Anarnia thing. <clears throat> so to take this from history and say, yeah, I've had a nice history lesson, we're going to bring it right back to personal, to you and me. I want to challenge you with a question, a slight alteration of the thesis question today, the title today. We've seen how the world has been a much better place because Jesus, the birth of the Savior, but my question is, is the world a better place because of your Christianity, because my Christianity... What if Todd Funk had never been born again? That's the question you need to put your name up there and ask. Is God's greatest gift to mankind, Jesus Christ, is he affecting my life in a noticeable way? Close your eyes. I'm going to have you ask yourself a few questions. And I'll pray. What am I doing personally to make the world look and feel more like heaven? What causes or humanitarian efforts am I currently involved in? What pain and what misery and what suffering am I helping to alleviate? What injustices am I speaking out about or doing something about in a loving way? Am I like Telemachus? Am I willing to risk ridicule and social death by taking stances that run counter to the culture? Will the Lord, like the angel Clarence, one day be able to show me my life, our lives, how our families are different, better. Our communities are different, better. Our world is better because of our actions. We pray for us. Jesus, thank you for being the light to the world, God's gift from heaven. Thank you for bringing peace on earth and goodwill towards men. Thank you for sending your Holy Spirit to empower us and compel us like Henry Dunant, to do something about suffering and pain. Help me to continue the fantastic legacy of trying to make the earth look a little more like heaven. I commit my, my hands and my head and my heart to your service, to your kingdom. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.
0: Thank you, Todd. Amen. It was like truth from a fire hose, wasn't it? It was awesome. And I wanna thank you, Todd. And it was great to just see you in action. And I love to we loved hearing your updates of what you're doing, but then to, to see you function in your gift, we just commend you and thank you. We're grateful and we're honored to support you and Donna. So can we thank Todd and Donna again? I'm going to dismiss you, but I want to encourage you to um, stop by, say hello to Todd and Donna. And, um, and i just like to, I know you've already been prayed for, but I just feel it wouldn't be right if I didn't do like a pastor prayer at the end. You know, I got I to gotta double pray. Is that all right to double pray? All right, let's do. Would you just stand with me? Oh, God, thank you. Thank you for the reminder um, of the precious gift that Jesus is. Thank you, God, for sending your son into this world. Thank you for the opportunity to be born again. And I pray, Lord, for every life that's here, God, that as they heard this truth, Lord, I pray that you would draw them closer to a relationship with you. If there are some that are in the room that have never said yes to you, Jesus, I pray that as they ask these questions, um, Lord, they'd find answers in you, they'd find your people surrounding them with the truth of your gospel, that brings freedom and hope not only to the world and society, but to individual lives. So I bless your people now, God. I pray that as a result of today, they would know you more. And as Todd said, that they would hold their heads high and and realize, Lord, that um, you are the way, you are the truth, and you are the life. We thank you and we praise you and we honor you together in the precious name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Amen. God bless you all.
3: I live for the moments where I'm still in your presence. All the noise dies down. Lord, speak to me now. You have all my attention. You feel the